Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james brandon webb is what i call a slasher he is an ex-navy seal he ran the seal sniper training program which uh, if you ever saw the movie American Sniper, that guy graduated from Brandon's school, set up a very successful website with millions of monthly users that focuses on military news, foreign policy news, and so on. That's at softrep.com, S-O-F-R-E-P.com. He's written some great nonfiction books about his SEAL experience and also a book about how to combat fear. But more recently, he's the author of a series of amazing thriller books. They're like, best-selling thriller books that are being optioned for movies and video games and so on. The latest one just came out, Blind Fear, and Brandon comes on, and I basically ask him, A, what's advice he would give me if I wanted to write a thriller or if any of you wanted to write a thriller? B, what's going on in Russia, Ukraine, China? And C, uh, what's He's got a very interesting next book planned about mental management and describes some techniques there. So without further ado, here's Brandon Webb. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Brandon Webb, welcome back to the show. Let's pour right into it. You just came out with a new thriller yesterday. Yeah, Blind Fear, which is book three in the Finn series. And it's a blended military and psychological thriller. Uh, this 
Blind Fear takes place in Vieques in Puerto Rico. So if this our main protagonist, Finn, is kind of hiding out there trying to find out the information about the real killer that that he's he's been framed for this terrible war crime. Um, and so he's hiding out in Vieques and then stumbles upon a another issue that he got. I don't want to have too many spoilers, but <laughs> if you if you go to the Amazon page, up the very first review, it says there's missing children involved. Yeah, yeah. So that's and that's not much of a spoiler. It happens essentially in chapter one. It's more of what goes on with the missing kids that he he uncovers that gets interesting. There's submarines involved. Uh, it, it's really cool. And then to essentially add to the tenseness of the situation, there's this massive superstorm bearing down on the on the island. This hurricane, like one of those one that comes along every fifty hundred years, and so it's it's like the final kind of action sequences. Is it's it's a storm is just just bearing down it's it's on it's landed and it's just wreaking havoc uh so it's it's good i'm really i'm excited about the series i we were talking earlier we we optioned it to whip studios so um hopefully what does that mean who's whip studios they're a um i believe a subsidiary of creative arts agency um and they huh. they basically package projects and sell them to whether it's hbo disney apple they sell to all the good streamers so they you know, we've got a very aggressive option package that my agent at WME put together to essentially, there's a fuse, a lit fuse on the option, a very short one. Um, and they've cut a deal with our production partner, uh, Ben Smith at Captivate Entertainment. And then we have a really good screenwriter, Jim Danger Gray. This is his nickname, Danger. Kind of funny. But uh, he's a, an amazing writer. So we think that it's going to get made. That's That's the point I'm trying to make. Now, what what about your earlier novels? Are they optioned as well? Um, I have the Killing School, which was a which was a nonfiction book about the Navy SEAL sniper program that I that I used to run. That is being made into a video game as we speak with Maximum Games, and that's been an amazing project to work on. I I have a call with those guys once a week. I actually went to Bucharest, uh, Romania to work with the dev team. I took them to sniper range. Um, so I've got that project. The, the game should come out next year, end of next year. Wow. Um, and, and, and what's the deal? Like, how do you make money off that? I get a revenue share. So it's, it's a, okay. yeah, it's a big deal. And I'm, it's interesting. I've had a little bit of exposure to Hollywood and the, and now the video game industry and the, the game industry is so much different. They, they really want to get it right where Hollywood will go, eh, we know that's technically the way they would do it in the military, but we're going to do it this way because it, it's you know a bigger explosion and more glamour. The game guys are like, no, we need to get this right. Like The players are going to know this has to be authentic. And, and then also an interesting thing, they, they had me write an entire plot with this guy, Cade Ryland, I made up. Um, and this whole plot of this SEAL sniper in Iraq who you're watching... He's watching uh, as he's between missions these videos of his wife and daughter, and then halfway through the game, you realize that his wife and daughter have been uh, killed in a car accident by a drunk driver. Um, and then, when you're getting to the final mission, you realize, oh shit, this is not the final mission. The guy that's been feeding you the U.S. intel um, is actually a, a, an Iranian bad guy who's the real bad guy. So there's like these plot twists, and then you. 
you have to deal with the bureaucracy of the military not letting you kind of take this guy out. They're saying, no, don't take the shot because the CIA is embarrassed. So I wrote all this like crazy plot and they're like, we love it, man. <laughs> it's like we, we want this like realistic storyline because you see now the games are getting so good and that they're getting movies like the, what was the recent one? I forget that was on HBO, The Last of Us, right? So. Oh yeah, that, that was a game, right? Yeah, the storytelling is really getting good and I'm having more fun working on the game than I ever did on Hollywood production. Wow. So why do you think that is? Why do you think the game industry is basically more real than the movie industry? I think it's culture. It's a culture issue. I think that, you know, when you look at the the kind of culture of people that work in gaming, they're gamers themselves. They're oftentimes coders and they they're geeks. They want to get it right, you know? Like and that I really respect. Um, where Hollywood, they're just like, yeah, whatever. You know, we're just going to blow this up. Or it's like I wrote a, a soft rep review for Guy Ritchie's new film, The Covenant, which is a great. He did a great job telling the story of this like betrayal of America to the interpreters that we left behind when the U.S. pulled out. But there's just so many cheesy things that they got wrong on the on the military, the technical side, like this huge C-130 gunship, which is an incredibly powerful machine. It, it never flies in the daytime. It's just, everybody knows it always flies at night. It flies at 20,000 feet. And here Guy Ritchie has it screaming, you know, 1,500 feet above ground level in the daylight, just freaking mowing down bad guys. <laughs> I was like, why not just have the sun go down and then the plane comes? Because um, you could have accomplished the same thing. But it that kind of stuff drives me crazy. And, and all the other veterans out there crazy, you know, where enlist, yeah. enlisted guys are calling each other sir. And it's like, you don't do, that's like such a break of protocol. You know, you call them by their rank, like sergeant or gunny or petty officer. Oh, oh really? So like, chief, like uh, a private doesn't call a lieutenant sir? No, he would. A lieutenant would be an officer, but a private wouldn't call a, like say the Marine Corps, wouldn't call a gunny sergeant. Um, Sir, he would say, yes, gunnery, gunnery sergeant, so-and-so. Um, so just like these little things that, you know, they're little, but they make a, it's a huge difference, right? It'd be like, like you said, all these AI, we're talking about the AI wannabes. You can just tell they don't have a, the base of knowledge. But, but anyway, the, the point is the, <laughs> the Hollywood doesn't really care. Um, I, I've been on a set where I'm like, look, that doesn't happen. They're like, yeah, yeah, we know, but we're just, we're, we don't care. Game guys do. Like, they're very, very, very much paying attention to detail. I describe in the intro that you're a slasher, meaning you're a Navy, you know, ex Navy SEAL, slash, you ran their sniper school, slash, you have a military news company, which I want to talk about, slash, you've written a bunch of nonfiction books about, in, in part based on your SEAL experience. And now you're like a thriller writer and optioning for movies, games, and so on. I sort of feel like this is the general trend of careers, which is that some things you do because you did them as you're younger and it becomes your career and, and so on. So the early part of your career, but then you sort of evolve into doing more and more things and creating income streams from things you love. Yeah. Right now, what do you love the most? I love creating and I'm being very creative right now with, with SoftRep, the news company that I run because we're really integrating AI into our research. All of our images now are generated on mid-journey. So that's 
always been a huge challenge is how do you find the right image that's copyright free that ties into a headline? Now we can just tell Midjourney, I can paste in, you know, a headline and say, create an image that's that supports this headline. Boom. And, and I get just insane imagery. Uh, so, so I'm excited about that, but I, you know, I, I like creating stuff. So as long as I'm able to kind of create, I mean, I decorated my, my apartment by myself, you know, it's like, <laughs> I, I like interior design, you know, you, you're doing this, this thriller series. It's interesting because I mean, you were a nonfiction writer, but now you're writing these thriller plots. I do find it difficult to go from nonfiction writing to plot-driven writing. And here you have this, this latest thriller, Blind Fear. You have your Jack Reacher. Is that the character? Your Jack Reacher-type character in, in Finn. But you're combining all these tropes, like missing children. You're accused of a crime, and there's, there's no one around to defend you, and you have to find the killer yourself. And Hurricane. It's like you took three different top box office movies and combined them, threw in the Navy SEAL stuff, and boom, that gets you like a plot. I feel like there's two styles of writing a thriller. One where there's a cliffhanger where you don't know who the killer is or the kidnapper or whatever. And every time you think you know, you're surprised and it's someone else. And then you're surprised again and so on. Or you kind of know, but just the character is in so much trouble sorting to save himself throughout the, the your, your cliffhanger becomes more about the character saving himself as opposed to figuring out who the killer is. Which style kind of drives your plot? I think we have both, actually. Like, we have this really interesting reveal at the end that I think will take people by surprise. The same way our, the first, the first in the series, Steel Fear, was everyone, you could have, you could have thought the killer was three or four different people in Steel Fear. And at the end, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe it was, was that person. Um, but we do have that going on in this in this book, you you know kind of who the bad person is, what they're doing, because everybody kind of knows, but no one knows the real identity. And when the identity gets revealed, it is kind of a, it's it's definitely a moment. You're like, whoa, that's that's crazy, because it's a very prominent character on the island. So that, and then Finn is in this like terrible situation where the government's chasing him. They, he's AWOL. He's they think that he's killed innocent people and, and part of this war crime and he's, he's been framed. So he's dealing with all this. And then he stumbles into this, you know, he carries a guy that cares and he, he makes friends with this, this, um, this old man in Vieques and his grand and his grandkids as well. And his, and then one day the grandkids go missing and he kind of gets, he's like, okay, well, I just can't sit back and do nothing. And so he kind of follows the, the uh, breadcrumbs and then gets involved in a whole, whole bunch of other things. Uh, and at the same time, he's being hunted by the U.S. government. And then this big storm bearing down. Um, and then also, it's one of the things I think we did right was it, it's hard to hide in, in today's modern society. Like, everything's tracked. You get cell phone signal. You have IP addresses. It's very hard to kind of cover your tracks. And so I think we do a pretty good job creating a believable scenario where, where he does he does leverage some experts on the dark web to kind of not only figure stuff out, but also cover his own tracks. Um, but anyway, the, the fiction stuff is fun, but I, I also, I feel this tug of nonfiction and I, I just wrote a proposal, which I had chat GPT, write 
your uh, your recommendation, <laughs> and I emailed it to you, right? I said, write in the voice of James Altucher uh, <laughs> to support this kind of book that I'm writing, and I just gave a very good prompt, and boom, it spit out what, what I sent you. Um, but it's a book about what something I really I feel strongly about, and I, I taught it, I live it, I've used it on my kids, was mental management, and how do you sustain you know, a strong mental program throughout your entire life. Like what are the characteristics and components and, and habits? And so I, that tentatively is um, the book that I sent you on mental management. Give me a technique that isn't an obvious one. I, I need better mental management. Just making a habit of, of um, writing a mantra every day. Like I do a grateful journal in the morning and I, I have my current mantra that I run, which basically you're, you're controlling self-talk because uh, we all deal with, we all deal with fear. We have stuff that comes up in our lives. We have self-doubt. And so when you hear that voice kind of creeping up in your head, you're like, okay, I need, like, this is my current situation and I need to counter this narrative that in my head by with this powerful affirmation and you just hammer down on it every day you write it and it makes a big difference, right? And like, what if, let's say you're writing your book and halfway through you're like, oh man, this sucks. Like I just read some old chapters and what am I doing? How, how I'm such a loser. How could I be a writer? And like, so A, you notice you're saying this, but then what do you do? Well, then I would write just a counter narrative to, to that. Cause I mean, look, you, you, you and I have been there, right? We've we've had those conversations of self-doubt with ourselves. And so you just have to go, okay, I know I'm not that way. And I even if I don't believe it, I gotta write it. I gotta start and then make yourself believe it. And that's something that, you know, dealing with yeah, and, and this is something that, you know, I learned when I was running the the program. We had all these consultants come in and one of the the best guys I work with was a gold medalist named Lanny Basham. And, and he developed this program before there was a thing called positive psychology. Um, he was using these techniques on himself to win the gold medal. I mean, this is a guy that, I mean, he was on the army shooting team. He won silver in Munich because he just crumbled. He, he said, my mental game fell apart because he was getting heckled by these Russians on the bus. And they got inside his head. He was already a world champion at this point. He was kind of like a shoe-in for the gold medal. And he's like, I completely collapsed. I came back, talked to all these sports psychologists that were just, you know, this is in the 70s. At the time, they were just trying to make him okay with being number two. And he's like, no, that's not what, I, that's not what I'm after here. So he interviewed all the champions on the Olympic team, like all the gold medalists, and created this program for himself, encapsulating like all their techniques um, and a lot of it was visualization, self-affirmation, and eventually you believe that you're you're the best. And if your gear breaks, you're still going to beat everybody. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now 
because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I always feel like this kind of stuff, there's a tinge of bullshit in it. And I know, by the way, I know it works. I've done podcasts where there's like scientific research that self-talk is really important and, and works. I just... I have a hard time doing it. Like, let's say I'm in the middle of some competition and I'm not doing that well. It's hard not to feel like a loser. Yeah, I know. And I think that's where, you know, having some maybe pre-planned narratives where you can just kind of pull it out and go, okay, if, if I get in this situation, here's my game plan. Like, you just have it in your pocket. It's When you look at uh, Phelps won, I think it was a 100-meter final in China, he jumped into the water and his goggles flooded. But he had already like rehearsed for this contingency. He'd, he'd visualized and rehearsed for what this what he would do. So he just started counting his strokes and he just knew how to do flip turns. Now, where most people, you're swimming in the final of Olympic, an Olympic event. Imagine your freaking goggles flood. It's like your worst nightmare. But he's like, yeah, okay, I, I've trained for this. And he ended up setting a world record with flooded goggles. Um, because he had yeah. done the visualization and and trained for these contingencies, right? Because shit will go wrong. 
and and you just have to you have to plan for it and develop these contingencies and and rehearse for it. And I think you could do the same thing in chess, like imagine yourself in those situations and go, okay, what what are some things that I could do to kind of yank myself out? And and one of the things is when you're having like we all get into these slumps. And the thing is, stop playing. Like when I get it, if I lose, it's a, it's hard to do too, right? Because you and I both play chess. Yeah. When you're on a losing streak, it's hard to just go. I gotta stop. What about if I'm in a tournament though, where you can't really stop? Well, then I think that's where the challenge comes in, where you have to you have to figure out, okay, what am what can I do to kind of yank myself out of this out of this slump? And maybe it's you know, watching win, a bunch of winning games or, or remembering like all the games that you've won. Because the thing when you're practicing and you're doing, you're, you're having a bad day, right? You just got to, the, the right thing to do is to stop because you're reinforcing failure. Right. And when you're on a run, you just want to keep going because that's, that's that kind of positive reinforcement. I mean, also the way that we talk to ourselves matters and the way that we talk, we coach and teach matters. That was one of the biggest corrections I installed when I was running the sniper program was negative teaching over positive. I said, guys, don't point out mistakes. These guys are beginner snipers. If you're telling them all these mistakes, you know, guys that are three positions down are going to hear it. And then all of a sudden you're programming these bad habits in their brain and they didn't even know it existed. So just give them the corrective procedure. If a guy is flinching on the trigger, which is very common, right? You pull the trigger, and you're just anticipating. And the way to check that is you put a dummy around in the gun, and when they pull, if it's good, it's like click, and the guy doesn't move. Or it's like, um, and so that's, okay, this guy's flinching. But we would never tell that, don't flinch. We would say, look, slow down, watch your breathing, go through your mental checklist, make a nice smooth trigger pull. That would be the corrective procedure, not, hey, man, you're flinching. Because when you say that, all, all the guy is thinking about now, he's stressed out, he's got an instructor telling him he's flinching, and all he's thinking about is flinching. And now everyone on the firing line is thinking about flinching, and it just creates this freaking COVID virus that spreads on the firing line. Right. So it's just those... No, but this is a good idea of, of pre-planning all the possible things that could go wrong in a live competitive yeah. situation. Like I'm thinking particularly for chess, like maybe you got into a losing position. Okay, what do I do? Maybe I lost a bunch of games in a row. Now I'm back in my room. Okay, what do I do? Yeah. Like pre-plan and visualize all these things, what you would do. Maybe I didn't sleep so much. What do I do? Yeah. Uh, I think that that's good to kind of then sort of fall back on some memory where you have confidence and kind of just like repeat and visualize that to yourself. Uh, it's that, That's a strong technique. And, and my my reason for writing this book is you know, I've been through hell, right? I've personally been through a, a lot of adversity. And I feel like the training I had as a sniper and around this mental management has really helped me deal with a lot of things that life has thrown at me. And and I see other people. And, and look, Phelps is one of the greatest swimmers in the world, but he suffered from massive depression and, and kind of what is he next? If, if not an Olympic swimmer, which was his whole life, what's his new identity? And, and a lot of SEALs go through that. They, they're on top and now they're out in the real world and the SEAL stuff, you know, with $5 will get you a, a latte at Starbucks, right? Like they just, they're like, who the hell am I now? And a lot of guys don't, they, they fall off the cliff. And I see it in finance, these other 
whether it's sport, professional sporting careers, but what can we do as humans to kind of sustain this high degree of, of mental uh, management that will get us through a lifetime so we don't dip, you know, or the dips are much smaller um, and they're not just like catastrophic, right? Because we've seen these people that are, you know, whether it's Britney Spears, Michael Phelps, these people that are like t- Tiger Woods are at the top of their game one minute and then it's just catastrophic the next. And it's like, how do, how do you develop these habits for life that kind of, that will sustain superior performance, no matter what you do, whether you're a parent, a business leader, an executive, whatever. But that's, that's the book yeah. right next. Cause I think that's a, a good one. Yeah. I think I can't wait to, to read that one and, and talk more about it. I mean, I think a key thing also is like, people often ask me like, oh, you went broke and then you bounced back you know, how did you get to the point where, you know, things are, are stable again? They're never actually stable. That's the myth. Yeah. Like things are always going wrong, but like your ability to deal with them and bounce back faster gets better. Yeah. And, or, or the ability to kind of take the good with the bad, like some things get bad permanently, you know, maybe you have a health issue that's chronic or whatever, like to be able to, to understand that this happens in life and there, there's, there's positive moments that can happen until you're old and the moment you die, like you, yep. you could still find the positive in all these things. And, and that's the thing. It's not like solving the problem and, and like in a movie and then life is good forever. Exactly. It's, yeah. It has to just continue. Exactly. And that, that's why I think developing a habit, which I think I have done a pretty good job of incorporating this stuff into my daily life. It's, it just continues to get me through the tough times, whether, you know, my family member has ALS or, um, you know, stuff, it's life, all business, life, all, nobody gets out unscathed, right? So that's the book tentatively is Invisible Dominance, but that's, that's what I'm most excited about writing next. Uh, because I think it's a, it's an important book. It's unique. And it's a story that I can tell well with experience to back it up. Um, so yeah, thank you for the GPT blurb. <laughs> No, no problem. Have my, virtual James is happy anytime to give GPT blurbs. Uh, <laughs> I did it with Jarek so, Robbins too, Tony Robbins' son. Who's, you know Jarek, I think. Yeah. Um, he's like, dude, that's amazing because I did it for him too. He's like, I just like picked like my friends who are are uh, successful authors and i just like, okay. Because the GPT knows your voice, right? You've published so much. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, Jarek was like, man, I could have written, written that any better myself. So. It's been fun. You know, I had to write a blurb recently and I spent like weeks like avoiding writing this blurb. I should have just used ChatGPT to write my blurb. Yeah. Totally forgot. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So with thrillers, give me advice. If I wanted to write a thriller, like I've written 25 books and I've even written some fiction and I've, I've written a lot of unpublished fiction. When I first started writing, that was how I kind of paid my dues. I wrote, you know, 30 years ago, a lot of unpublishable fiction. So right now, and I've had tons of thriller writers, you, Ken Follett, Brad Meltzer, Brad Thor, uh, ton, I had tons of thriller writers on the podcast. So I've kind of, you know, heard and learned a lot. If you were to give me advice, I want to write a thriller, what advice would you give me? I would say, pra- I would say practice, which it sounds like you've already done. And, and look, I've written two novels that haven't been published and I'm redoing one now. Um, and 
So the pro- are they thrillers or more literary or what kind they're of not, novels are not they? Thriller, they're novels. I, I literally I wrote a book. Um, I'm finishing it now. I I wrote a a novel about four women going through SEAL training, and two of them make it. Um, I wrote that. I think that's and it's all takes place in this like hectic SEAL training, um, and so that that book is is done, and I just finished rewriting it. Um, but that hasn't been published. I wrote three quarters of a book about three homeless friends that live inside Penn Station in New York. And one of the guys inherits, um, he was an ex-doorman. He ends up a lady that, this guy had a tragic story. He he quit a 20-year doorman job to go to a new building in New York and then got falsely accused of stealing uh, a package and got fired and then he couldn't get his old job back. And then one of the women in his old building ends up leaving him his, her fortune like a couple million bucks her penthouse apartment but it's a burden to him he's homeless he doesn't have responsibility he hasn't thought about his daughter and now he's like thrust into this this situation where he has to take he has to get his life together um, in, in a similar sense the other main character donnie was a wall street guy got framed in the 2008 crisis like they pinned it on him when he was like saying look we shouldn't we shouldn't invest in these, in these. Um, I forget what they call them. These derivatives, right? Where they bundle those the bad mortgages. And, yeah. Uh, he basically gets fired, and then on the way home, and he he has a drinking problem. Like he's, but he's he's sober. And on the way home, he gets a call, and his son is is uh, likely it was hit hit by a car, likely to die, and for sure is is paralyzed. And so he just goes off the wagon. He never he never makes it home. He goes on a drunk and then ends up living in Penn station for two years. So, and then one day he sees his son in Penn station in a wheelchair. And then his son is like a tech kid, but this kid's like rolling past him in the wheelchair and doesn't realize his dad is the homeless guy. Like it's crazy. But that, that book is really, I'm excited about that, but that's. Wow. I love, I love this book yeah. when that should be published. Yeah. Well, I'm going to finish it. Um, but, but this is me practicing it. Cause like you, like you said, and you and I've talked about, Fiction or fiction very different from nonfiction, right? It, it's yeah, I, I feel like it's you and I could create a cool plot, but to fill it in with interesting characters, and then you got it. A lot of it's the dialogue. You really got to nail dialogue, and that's tough. And I, I've just personally, just from my own experience, had to practice, and that's why I've been writing these novels on the side, and then learning from guys like. Uh, Brad Thor and and getting help from them, like how what their techniques are, and and everybody's different. Like I'm, John and I write together. He's very methodical. Like I I like for sure to have my plot and my outline and my main characters like very put put a lot of effort into that, and then I just write the story um, in a free flow form. I I feel like I feel like you're you're good at plotting. Like he's sort of t- I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you kind of because you're the ex Navy SEAL, you sort of like make the plot, yeah. And then he sort of like fills in a lot of the sort of words around telling the story. Yeah, I can make the plot. I'm really good at kind of like the a lot of the characters, and then what John's brilliant at is bringing them to life. And then as you know, he's he's good at naming too. And but yeah, we work we work well together. But he writes very different than I do. I write more Stephen King style, where it's just free flow, where he's like, no, he's got it all mapped out, like he's got the entire 
you know, very detailed architectural plans where I'm like, okay, I got a loose sketch and I'm going for it. I feel like I would be really good at, and, and I know this from just my previous attempts, I'm really good at the premise. So I'll come up with a good premise. Like your premise of three guys in Penn Station who are homeless and one guy inherits some money and boom, the story goes off. But then I have a hard time kind of coming up with twists that the reader can't guess in advance. Like I think, and and by the way, I, I see that in other writers. Like for instance, I think one of the best writers in history for premises is Neil Gaiman, you know, who's written so many novels, movies, comic books, and so on. But I think sometimes, at least with some of his stories, it doesn't always come full circle. The plot doesn't always end well. And not a criticism of him. He's the best premise writer in history almost. But I feel like it's hard for me to, to then get into the particulars of plot and, and yeah. the twist. I'll tell you what, because you're, I think you and I both have good, like we're good at generating ideas. You should go and, into GPT-4 and say, this is my plot. Give me some plot twists. Give me this. You just develop a really good prompt and be completely blown away by what it gives you. I, I asked it, I want to write science fiction um, that has to do with special ops in the future. And it should be like climate change, rising sea levels. And, and the, now we're, we're actually fighting deep under the oceans for control of minerals and resources. And then there should be some crazy portal that aliens left in underwater to kind of check on the planet Earth and give me like a bunch of different worlds and describe each world in detail. And it, and so I had a very good prompt and it blew me away. And it described like this world was a water world. This world was desert, like Dune. And like it gave me everything. And I was like, oh my God, it's so good. And, and I think that you know, people would go, oh, you're cheating. But no, these these are the tools that are available. And if you're not using them as an artist and a creator, you're going to be left in the in the dust. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I don't view AI as a replacement because whenever I see total replacement, it, it's it, it's not that good. Like if AI were to write that novel, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be that well written. And and by the way, people say, oh, well, that's just going to improve really fast. It's not really going to improve very fast. It's already, you know processed every single piece of text ever written. It's it's going to improve, but it's going to improve much more slowly now than than it has to get here. I, but it, if you view it as an assistant, then it's perfect. It's it's a good assistant and you and I are at an advantage because GPT has access to everything that's been published on the internet pre-2021. It knows your voice. Like you saw what I did yeah. you write. Like that, I gave it a yeah. prompt. It knows your voice. It can write in your style. And the same with me, because my son Hunter told me, he's like, hey, dad, I just want to let you know, like GPT really has you nailed. I, I had it write a short story in your voice. And it was like, you, you speaking to me. And I'm like, holy shit. So I went and started messing around with it. And I was blown away by how good it gets. Because I just tell it right in my right in the voice of, of Brandon Webb and, you know, create this. And it's, it's insanely good. Let's take that concept of the three homeless guys. One's the ex-Wall Street guy, one's the whose son is in a wheelchair. The other is the doorman, 
switch buildings unfairly accused, but the old building inherited the apartment and a couple million bucks. Okay, great premise. I love it. Let's say that's the first third of the book. What's the twist? What's the problem? What's the premise? What's the what's the thing that drives the plot next? It's so the story is about redemption, and the, the third character is a it's a South Korean immig- immigrant um, family. The family there were two teenage boys. The the mom and dad got killed in a car wreck, so they got put in this foster home, and they got they both got abused, and one of the brothers killed himself, and the other guy saw the Korean guy that he's the third homeless guy and he's very quiet. He's, he's a nice guy and, and they don't know his backstory. Um, but what happens is this is like the whole book is about a path to redemption, very much in the theme of the humans of New York, the way these stories just kind of grip you. Um, because I think it's interesting to see like these very, these tragic stories of, of people that were doing very well in life. And then they just fell off the cliff into pretty much substance abuse. And in this case, they're all alcoholics. Um, and so uh, Jimmy, which is the doorman, he's kind of the the catalyst of the other two guys to get their act together because they're all friends and they want to help. And, and, they, and these series of events come together where I had a New York Times reporter, because it's a great story, right? The homeless guy inherits a couple million bucks in a penthouse apartment. It's a great it's a great story. And they, they're trying to find him. They don't even know where to find this, this guy, Jimmy. But they find him, and then the reporter comes, and, and uh, Donnie, the guy with the son in the wheelchair, he's like, look, I'll, I'll handle... And the other thing is, too, that's fucked up, is Jimmy finds a, a Labrador puppy in the, in the garbage. Someone threw him out in, in Penn Station, and he raises his puppy, and he names this dog Hope. And this, this nasty woman from Animal Control gets a complaint and she comes to Penn station and rips the dog out of this guy. Like this, the dog is this is Jimmy's life and she freaking takes the dog away from him. And he's, he goes like quiet for, for a week, doesn't talk to anybody, but then they, he finds out he inherits his money. The New York times reporter comes and Jimmy doesn't want to talk to anybody. Donnie goes, Hey, I'll, I'll get him to talk, but I, I need you to do me a favor. Like I want to find out about my son and, and, and all this and I want to find out about my friend Saul. So can you like go in the, in the database and like tell me, like give a report on these guys. So then, then he finds out about all his friends and, and it's in, they go to the, um, to the law office where the lawyer is handling the state and Jimmy takes Donnie, his buddy. And, and then that that's at that point, they decide to go to a Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And then it's from there. It's, they're on this very clear path to, to redemption and it all takes place over Christmas in New York. And so it has a great happy ending. I mean, this is a great movie. Yeah. So, but but wait, how does like in the arc of the hero, the problems are supposed to get worse and worse and worse as you meet, you know, more and more allies and so on. Like how does Jimmy's problems get worse once he inherits? Well, his problems, you kind of learn in, in reverse, you, you know, first, it's very funny. One of my favorite books by John Steinbeck is called Tortilla Flats. And it's very, it gave me the inspiration behind this book because, you know, it was about a hobo in Monterey that inherits two houses from his aunt. And all of a sudden, he's got all these problems. Like his buddies are bumming off of him. And he was a, a mooch himself. And now he's like, oh, wait, you know, I have a house, I have responsibility. <laughs> it just changes things. But it's a very funny book because these guys are drunk and, 
you know, there's all these scenes where like Jimmy's a huge history buff and like these Mormon kids come to New York and they're trying to like convert him and he just gives them like a just a dressing down of a history lesson on the failings of the Mormon church and how bullshit it is. Like, um, but there's all it's it's a funny book because these guys are just getting shit faced every day and it's a new comedy of errors and, and just like life in Penn Station, every, all the weird stuff that goes on underground how the how the police department control the amount of homeless they don't they have a certain number they they it's like the magic number they can't have any more it just it tips the scales um but then you learn is that true i i don't think so but i made it up <laughs> so you kind of go backwards and learn about these eventually you come to know like their tragic stories and then it just sucks you in and then it's the path to redemption like that's kind of the rising action to the to the resolution is where you realize that in Donnie and Jimmy's case, Jimmy has a daughter, Donnie has his son and, and his wife, ex-wife that divorced him now, but they think that, oh, no one will want me back. My son doesn't want me. I'm ashamed. And then they find out that, no, these people actually do really care. There is that element of human forgiveness. And that's what I think makes the, the story beautiful is that's this kind of re, this redemption story but there's no like crazy plot twist. There's there's these like reveals where you find out, holy shit, like the Saul's character, you just have no idea what what happened to him. And then you then his two friends find out, like, holy shit, this guy was like sexually abused and his brother killed himself and and he ran away and then became homeless. And I see. So you just you just kind of keep the action happening with like the cliffhangers are realistic new reveals that could bring them down or could shed new light and and that keeps propelling the character forward yeah it's kind of dealing with each new reveal yeah and then you know the ending is you know they kind of have this happy ending where they get invited to christmas dinner but i don't i think i just told the whole book <laughs> but but uh, that's that's okay it's gonna be a while before this yeah, is published yeah, but that's you know i had fun writing that um and you know that's for me i'm just practicing to be a better novelist because I feel like I've got the nonfiction down. I've had a ton of practice. I, I like it. I enjoy it. I, I can write a book in 60 days. Like, and I could probably write a thriller now in 90 days because it's just, yeah, you got to just grind it out. I feel like I had a particular approach to nonfiction where I would write in a very storytelling style nonfiction. So I would, I would write basically almost like an illiterate, it was like narrative nonfiction. So I'd write in a literary style my nonfiction experiences yeah. because I don't need to plot them. I, I, I'm the plot. I know the plot. I had the failing and I survived and whatever. And again, like I practiced in the, in the nineties, I used to write 3000 words a day, pretty much for the entire nineties. And I wrote four novels, all of them completely unpublishable, <laughs> but rightly so. But you sh- and if you save them, you should load them up into GPT and have them like, I know I should. I unfortunately, it's so long ago. I certainly did not save them. <laughs> but I mean, I would. I was thrown out of graduate school because that's all I was doing was writing fiction <laughs> instead of studying computer science. And then I was printing up. You know, I would send to twenty publishers, so I'd print up like eight thousand pages on the school printers, and people were like, "Who's someone owes us money for all this paper?" And like, <laughs> I, there was a huge scandal. That's- but I, I didn't get good. I mean, I think I got to be a good writer out of that experience, but I wasn't like a novelist out of that experience. I was just a good writer. And I'd like to try writing a thriller. And this is the process, right? So John and I will write it. 
We'll have, we'll read it each other. Then we send it to a group of, we each have about four or five novelists that we send it to. They read it. Um, or, or they're maybe a novelist or they're just a, they're an avid fan of the, of the genre. So we have this group that we each send it to. They give us notes. And then we go, okay, yeah, we got to rewrite this. Then our editor, like a really good uh, Ann Spire, which is at Random House, she's amazing. She's like, guys, got to pick up the pace. Like, got to move it along. Like, chop this, chop that. And we're just like, oh, man, it's like so much extra work. But it's a lot more work than a nonfiction book. It's just like rewritten probably three or four times before you have a finished manuscript. And so it, it's, it is a process. And I'm sure that, you know, maybe... I, I'm probably sure Brad Thor does something similar. He has, he has uh, people read it. Even he's reached out to me before and asked me like military technical stuff. But I'm sure he, he's got readers that give him feedback. And that's super valuable because you having like thriller fans or novel, whatever the genre is, that are really into it, they know what they like. And, and they're and- a harsh critic. And it, and it makes the book so much better. Do you think like with, with the rise of like TikTok and, and, you know, scroll media, you know, with Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, do you think fewer people in the future are going to be interested in reading thrillers? I think, I think the core, I mean, look at this, look at it this way. I think that the core stories are going to, people like good content and People consume content differently, right? Like my youngest son is, he doesn't like reading, but he loves audio, right? And that's like a, I think they call that a form of dyslexia, which to me, it's kind of bullshit. It's just he learns differently than other people. But yeah. he love, people, cons- people like listen to audiobooks. Some like to read, some like to watch shows. So I think as long as, you know, the people will always crave content, like really good stories. And it's just, now we're in a we're at an incredible time, and where we can easily, with these tools, especially with artificial intelligence, turn these stories into multiple formats: written, audio. Like I watched, I went to Cannes Lions this year. It's a media advertising conference, and I I just lucked out and got an invite to OpenAI all day event, and they were showing me the OpenAI team was showing these artists and how they were using these tools. And I saw a guy that cloned David Attenberry's, I think that's his name, the British guy that narrated Planet Earth, cloned his voice Mm -hmm. with a voice clone, created these kind of furry monsters and made this whole like Pixar movie himself. One guy, um, I'll I'll send it to you. It's called Critters. Um, You can find it on YouTube, Critters with a Z, but I'll, I'll send you the link. I was blown away, all with AI. And I'm like, Okay, look, you and I know how difficult and time-consuming it is to read a book to audio. Well, now, 15 seconds, I can clone James Altucher's voice and have it read the book. And, and maybe I clone a few other well-known figures and slightly alter the voice, but it's like, you know, all of a sudden, you have all these guest appearances in, in the book, like in different voices, like reading the intro. You know, it's, it's crazy. And it just makes it, the technology is you can transform your content into so many different mediums. And I think that's the exciting thing. And I don't think that's going away. I think that's here to stay. But yeah, we'll paper books, 
you know, be a thing. You know, I think it'll just be a novelty. It's like classic cars. You know, people will always be into it, but it'll it'll just get, you know, it'll become this like weird niche. There is a kind of written content though, which never goes away, which is of course news content. So you run Softrep S O F R E E P dot com, which is a site about military news, military culture, foreign policy news, and so on. And what kind of content does well there? So you have, you have millions of, of visitors, but like what, what sort of content always seems to do the best? I was just reviewing our best stuff. So anytime like we do content around like ranger training, Navy SEAL training, you know, what's it like? How do you make it through? We, th- those do well. H- history posts, I, I did it. I used ChatGPT to help me write a kind of like, what if Nazi Germany won World War II? Like, what would it truly look like? And then I was using AI like analysts, like like, hey, what what would Churchill think it looks like? What would Admiral McRaven think it looks like? So you get these different perspectives and you kind of stitch it into this really cool storyline. That stuff does well. Um, I wrote also a piece that did really really well about I know enough about what's happening inside Russia to to give a really good prompt to GPT for and say, okay, what, what would civil war in Russia look like? Like, who are the characters? Who are the main protagonists? What mm. would happen? Mm. What would, how would it affect China? What would be China's concerns? What would be, a, you know, the EU and America's concerns? So you get this really in-depth research, and then I, can, then I can just edit it and package it. And that story held the number one spot for, um, I think, two weeks on SoftRep. And what will you think happen? Like, you know, given the recent events with this, you know, almost coup, which, which by the way, if that coup kept going, if the Wagner group kept going, they would have taken over Moscow. I think so. Yeah, and, I, and, and that's Putin's, that's his big problem right now. I think, um, you know, it definitely showed, like, weakness. And that's something in Russia that, that gets you killed or, or out of power very quickly. So that, that's Putin's biggest issue right now. I, I think his only saving grace is that you have Jenny guy, the Wagner leader. He is loyal and a friend of Putin. Um, his main issues were with the, with the minister of defense and some other characters. The point is Putin is in big trouble. Like there's weakness, clear display of weakness. This Wagner group, the leader's still running around. Um, and Wagner's all over. Yeah, where is he? Like, he's he, in, he didn't go to Belarus? Um, no, they, he's in St. Petersburg, the last, last reports. He's in St. Petersburg. Like, why doesn't Putin just, like, pick him up? Because you got to realize that Wagner is probably more sophisticated and technically capable than the Russian military. All of Russia's influence in Africa is controlled by Wagner. But wasn't the Wagner group disappointed in this guy that he didn't keep pursuing the coup? They, they feel like he was sort of paid off. Yeah, well, that's the thing. There was a deal cut. Like Now we know that there was this three-hour in-person negotiation between Wagner, you, know, you have Jenny, the leader of Wagner, and his, his main lieutenants, and Putin and his crew. Like They made it. They cut a deal. I don't know. Nobody knows what that is, but... It's um, it's clear that Wagner has a lot of power. Um, the Russian military is 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 worn out. Their defense tech. One thing that was shocking to me is like I knew it was bad, but not as bad as I 
clearly was displayed on the on the battlefield. Like their Russian defense tech is terrible. The Ukrainians have insane defense technology from the from the Americans and the and the British. They have a better armed force. They're way more motivated. And now the the what was kind of keeping Russia in the fight in Ukraine was Wagner. And now what's Wagner's gone for now. Like what's happening there? Nobody knows yet. And so I think this could be the end of Putin and it could be the end of Russia as we know it. I, I think it could fragment into different states. So But but again though he was suppressed for the moment. And and again, the Wagner group might have also trouble staying together given that a lot of people were disappointed that he didn't follow through. Yeah, but it's just, it's still all playing out behind the scenes. And I mean, yeah. a great movie to watch is The Death of Stalin, right? Like everyone, the way that things happen in Russia, it's very top heavy, right? There's not a lot of middle management. It's all these big oligarchs and, you know, these power making these power plays and these deals. So I, I think it, it's still happening. Meanwhile, you know, Putin is, Russia's under heavy sanctions. They're losing the war in Ukraine. They're, they've already kind of lost the war of public opinion. And, and now you saw where Erdogan in Turkey was like thumbs up for Sweden joining NATO. And that he was like, I, I think he sees weakness. And that's why he's like, okay, I better... I better warm up to the Americans because this isn't going Putin's way. Um, and I think we're going to see similar, some, something similar with the, with the Chinese as well. And then they're, they've got to be very concerned because that's like, who, who's next um, if it's not Putin? The other issue is, look, I'm, I'm an independent. I, I, I'm shocked that the best America can do is, is two guys like Biden and Trump. <laughs> like, is that the best that we have to yeah. offer? But we really don't, you know, Biden is clearly not in a, in a very good mental state. Like he's got clear, clear issues and, and we don't have strong leadership in the U.S. to kind of end the war. And it's going to take a very strong leader to, to kind of go to the table with, with the Russians, whoever it ends up being, if it's Putin or somebody else. And, and we don't have strong leadership in the EU. And so you end up with this, what was our Vietnam, right? It's kind of what what Ukraine has turned into for Russia. It's just like, nobody can make sense of it all. Nobody in Russia wants to fight. And it's just like a disaster. So I, I think it could just drag on. And that, that's, that's the sad thing. So I, I don't think there's a, a clear ending in sight. Um, I, I do think it will end in favor of Ukraine. But, but now I'm, you know, I used to call it, okay, well, Russia will take that Eastern territory and the Donbass region and, and the war will end. And, both sides will be unhappy, which is typically how a good negotiation ends. Um, everybody gives something, but in this case, I don't. I think this is a, Putin is in really big trouble, and and it's like a big. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns, but I think um, you know Ukraine could get it all back, even Crimea at this point, uh, depending on what happens. So, and and let's talk about uh, China. Do you think? Uh... I mean, a few years ago, I was convinced China was going to invade Taiwan any day, but now it's not so clear to me. You know, I was just having dinner with a, a friend from business school from Hong Kong, and we had to talk about this. I, I don't, I think Taiwan is similar, similar to Hong Kong is that the Chinese are, they're already in control. Like it's the native language is Mandarin. They've got so much Chinese culture. Their intelligence 
uh, like their version of the CIA is for sure heavy influence in Taiwan. And I think they've already kind of got the puppet strings. And this whole invasion is just like, yeah, whatever. Like, and, and they'll just wait it out. Like, they're like, yeah, Taiwan's ours. We're just not, we don't need to invade because we kind of already exert all this influence. And, you know, I think a lot of it is just kind of smoke and mirrors. Uh, but I, I think China is clearly in, in control of, of Taiwan. Maybe they don't have control of the certain industries. Like the big concern is the microchips, right? But China is clearly in the driver's seat in Taiwan. I mean, most Americans couldn't even point out where Taiwan is on a map. Right. I don't think I can, actually. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not... I, I don't even think about that anymore. I think it's just more like political grandstanding. I just watched the Schwarzenegger documentary, which is really good. And it, there's a scene in there where he's the governor of California and he's he's made a deal behind the scenes and then they storm out of the office and the Democrats screaming at him like, I'm never going to do this for you. Blah, blah. They've already made the deal. And Arnold's like, yeah, this is just kind of, he had a term for it, but it's all just, just kind of bullshit, political grandstanding, just just to show the people that they're like doing something. But in reality, they already cut the deal behind closed doors. Um, so I think a lot of that happens on this global stage. So again, you know, Brandon, you're involved in so many things, like ranging from military career, the soft rep, the military news website, thrillers, books, games, movies. What's the next thing you're working on? Blind Fear has just been published, came out yesterday. Everybody should go buy it. It's the If you like Jack Reacher, if you like all those types of thrillers, this is that on steroids, literally. So, well, he's not on steroids, but this is that plus military. Yeah. What's the exact next thing you're going to be working on? Uh, not the nonfiction book. Like, what's the next fiction thing you're going to be working on? I think I'm going to finish that Penn Station novel and try and get it published. That is a great idea. I'd love to be a test reader of that. Yeah, no, I would love to have you read it. I, and, I, and I'm sure you'd have great feedback as, as someone that's lived in New York for a long time. Yeah, like, did you do research and did you spend some time as homeless in Penn Station just to see? I, not, no, I thought about it, but I've I spent a lot of time in Penn Station observing like as a sniper would, I'm just kind of like taking notes and watching, you know, how the police work and the, and the homeless. And I remember there's even a part in the book where I remember I was, I was in Penn station. And I saw a guy try and set up a, a music stand and the other homeless were like, no, they shushed, they kind of shushed them away because it's like, that's their territory. And in, and in my novel, they actually, they, the three, the three characters, they rent out their, their space for a cut of this guy's. He plays blues guitar, and they, they get thirty percent of his of his profits. <laughs> so they kind of like rent out the little real estate, and it keeps them in in booze, you know. And, and they actually they can make around thirty k a year in this like with the with renting their little space to the blues guitarist, and they basically just perpetually drunk. Like it keeps them. They they make enough money to, to buy enough food and alcohol. That's funny. Well. First off, good luck on Blind Fear. I, I always love your thriller books. I don't have to say that. Like people know I love them. I want to see all your mo books as movies. I want to I want to go to the movie for for a lot of these. Yeah. Uh cuz I'm just curious what what a good movie director will make things look like. And you know, I'm looking forward to this next book, The Penn Station Homeless Book. What's do you have a title for that one? Uh just called Penn Station. Ah, I so love it. I like the simplicity. Yeah. Penn Station. Um the subtitle is just a chronicle of hope and resilience in New York City. Also, I have a signing. Any any of your 
the Altature listeners are in New York on the 26th, which is Wednesday. I'm doing a signing at Mysterious Books in Tribeca. So I would love, really, yeah, I would yeah. love to see any any of your fans there. Love love to sign books. Any, anything I can do for for your audience? That's extra. Okay, so so July 26th, yes. which is like in a week or so. Go to the Mysterious website, Mysterious Books in Tribeca. They've got the event. Cool. Well, good luck with all this stuff. Once again, thanks for the tips. At some point, I got to hold myself accountable to it. At some point, I'm going to write a thriller novel. I have, like, again, a premise, but I've just got to sit down and, and think about it. Yeah. And uh, I'd love to help you and and check out the, you'd be amazed at what, what GPT can generate. Like, I, idea eight. Yeah, that was good. That was good advice. I am going to th- throw in a premise and see what it says. Yeah. All right, sir. I will talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, James. I'll, I'll be uh, hounding you for a chess lesson soon. Excellent. Anytime. Okay. See you, brother.